One more announcement before we get into Genesis chapter 30. There is a, uh, a discussion that's taking place amongst a lot of Christians today. And so some of you may be aware of it. Some of you may not be. Um, but it centers on um, the Holy Spirit and whether or not all of the special gifts that we see poured out in the first century whether or not all of those gifts are still being poured out today. So there's two different sides to that debate. At the forefront of this debate, uh, most recently are guys like uh, John MacArthur and Mark Driscoll. So knowing that a lot of people are, are paying attention to this and following it, I wanted to advise or, or send a couple resources your way. One is this morning uh, on the city, I posted an article or a letter that I've been working on for the last couple of weeks. It's specifically for uh, those of you who call Veritas your church home. Now, if you're on the city and you don't call Veritas your church home, you can obviously go and, and find it and read it. And maybe, maybe you'll find it helpful. It is by no means an exhaustive treatment of the, uh, of the issue or the discussion or the controversy, not by any means. What I try to do is number one, to clarify what the controversy is, because I think there's some misconceptions I've picked up on um, about what the controversy actually is and what the opposing sides say regarding this um, open-handed issue that we wouldn't want to divide over. So number one is to bring clarity to what the issue actually is, and then some concerns. So I expressed, I think, three concerns, and that's really to us as a church. Um, I'm I'm not held accountable for everyone and every Christian on planet Earth, thank God. But I am, according to Hebrews 13, held accountable for those who would call this their church home. And so uh, I've just got some concerns because I love you and care about you. And so encourage you to go and, and, and read that this week if you might find it helpful as well. And, and I point this out in that article, uh, two resources to send your way, um, both when we sell in our bookstore. One. If you're looking for a sort of a comprehensive book on the identity and activity of the Holy Spirit, um, I I don't think there's a better book than G.I. Packer's Keep in Step with the Spirit. So we've got that here. So if you're looking, you're just maybe kind of new to this or you're you're wanting to dig in and learn more about the, the identity of the Holy Spirit, who he is and his activity, what he does. I think that's a great book to start with. So Keep in Step with Spirit. Um, the other one, we just got this in. On Saturday, so it's hot out of the box. Um, this morning back here is Samuel Waldron's To Be Continued. So if you're looking for a very concise um, biblical explanation of the cessationist view, which is the view that I hold, uh, I think this is one of the better books out there. So anyway, 12 bucks. I'm not sure how much the other one is, but those are both available to you out there. If you've got your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 30. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, Another chapter in the lives of the unpromising material God loves and graciously chooses to use for good. So when we're reading the book of Genesis, we're tracking along with this chosen family of God. God's got big plans, God has big promises, and He's working through this family. And as we get to know this family, sometimes we're surprised. Because they don't necessarily look like God's family. 
Um, they don't look like what you would expect. This is not a, a, a superstar family. In fact, when we read it today, there's a lot of examples for us. And not examples to follow, right? Examples not to follow. Uh, this is unpromising material. When you look at Jacob and his family, it doesn't look too good. I mean, this is, we're going to see today, a polygamous family. Okay? That means he has more than one. One wife. And we're going to talk about polygamy more in, in, the, in the weeks to come. Um, why is polygamy is all over the place in your Bible? So why is polygamy in the Bible? Is God okay with polygamy? So we'll talk about that in weeks to come. I'll just leave you on the edge of your seat for now. And you can just wonder whether or not we're going to change some things here at Veritas. Uh, it's a polygamous family, uh, a passive husband. Jacob's not always passive, and he's going he's gonna to turn out to be a stud, but there's a lot of passivity in his life right now. He's, he's not, he is not doing well. So he's a passive husband, a passive father, uh, feuding sisters. That's probably not even a strong enough word. Um, these two sisters that we're going to read about in this family are embroiled in, in a really strong feud. In fact, what we're going to see uh, never even heard of this before, but competitive childbearing. <laughs> competitive childbearing, where they're they're acting like the baby bull. They're actually trying to have, they're trying to outdo one another in the amount of, of babies that they have. Just, just there's godlessness. There's godlessness where, where God's people are not thinking about God. They're not praying to God. They're, they're not involving God in their thoughts. They're not involving God in their decisions. They're they're not worshiping him. And, and Genesis doesn't try to give you a, uh, a, a polished look at God's people. You've noticed that. It gives you a very uh, frank and real look at who God's people are and then how a great God uses, uses them. We see this still today. Um, some of you would call yourself God's people. You you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you know that there's been godlessness in your life. You know that there are times or seasons when he'll just call you. <laughs> there's, there's times and seasons when... Uh, <laughs> When you have not loved the Lord the way you ought, when you have not served the Lord the way you ought, when you have, when you have not, not pursued Him the way you ought. It reminded me this morning of a verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, that I want to read to you as, as sort of the, uh, the backdrop behind what we're reading today and to keep in mind as we're going through our study and then we'll pray. 2 Timothy 2, 13 says this, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. That is a great verse. A really short, short verse, but it says so much. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. It could also say when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because you know what I know. And that's that, that we are faithless at times. Right? I say I'm going to do things and I don't do them. 
Um, I break promises. I, I, I don't commit myself to the Lord the way I should. I don't, I don't obey Him when I ought to obey Him. I don't enjoy Him the way I should. I don't proclaim Him the way I should. There is, there is faithlessness in my life. Now, God has promised that if you love Jesus, if you're a Christian, you're one of His adopted children, He's never going to unadopt you. So He is going to make sure that you stay faithful to the end. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to have seasons in your life where there's faithlessness that's coming from you. But God is faithful. God is faithful. When we hear that God is faithful, it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around that because we just have nothing to compare it to. God is faithful. He always says what he says he's going to do. He never breaks a a promise. He is always faithful and true to his word. He never leaves. He, He never forsakes. And we don't have examples of that anywhere in this life. I mean, none. None. I mean, we've had people who were who were supposed to be faithful to us and who claimed to be faithful to us and who promised to be faithful to us. But every single one of them in one way or another has let us down. They're sinful like we are and we've let others down. And so when we hear that God is faithful, we, we don't have any kind of a comparison for that, which is why at times, you know, God allow circumstances to go a certain way in our life. And we even assume that maybe he's not being faithful. Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he's not going to fulfill his promises. Maybe he's not going to do what he said he was going to do. Maybe he doesn't really love me. Maybe he doesn't really care about me. Maybe he has left me. Maybe he is forsaking me. Maybe he's had enough of me. Maybe he's discarding me, right? We, we deal with these thoughts where we question the goodness and the faithfulness of God. But regardless of whether or not we're questioning the faithfulness of God, God remains faithful. We're faithless. We're faithless. But God is always faithful. Okay, Genesis chapter 30. A faithless family right now. This is not going well. And yet God is going to be faithful to them. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that we have today. God, we pray that you would teach us something about your faithfulness that when we see this family that is a wreck, that's, that's a mess, a family that many of us may identify with, God, that we would look behind this faithless family and see faithful God. Yes. See you um, loving them, being compassionate to them, working with them and for them, and using them for your good and accomplishing your plans and your purposes. Help us to see that, God. There's lots of truth that's in your word today that is for our good. And we need your Holy Spirit to light it up. We need your Holy Spirit to to come and to teach our hearts your word and your truth so that we can be changed. God, there's no reason. We know that every time we sit under the preaching of your word that we could never be the same again. So today we're here again, listening to your word, thinking about your word, reading your word. And we pray that we would never be the same again. And then we pray next week, we'd never be the same again. You continue to grow us, to mature us, make us more like Jesus, according to your word. So we've got high hopes. We pray these things in the great, the perfect name of Jesus. Amen. I'm not going to draw a lot of specific application today. 
Not going to draw out a lot of specific application. We're going to read through. We're going to see some good examples. We're going to see some bad examples. We're going to see God's faithfulness in spite of all of that. And then I'm praying the Holy Spirit will will help you and your own soul to draw some application from this because I think there is a ton. Seven years that we're going to cover right now. This is a busy seven years. This is the second seven years that uh, Jacob is working for Laban. He's going to finish out 14 years of work for him. In these seven years, he's going to have four wives, four wives and 12 children. Twelve children will be born in seven years. So this is a crazy. This also means that you have multiple women pregnant at the same time in this house. So this is a this is a wild house, right? Seven years, four wives, twelve children, multiple women pregnant at the same time. We're going to back up to chapter twenty nine. Because this all has to do with Jacob's children. We're going to see where they all came from. And, and first we need to see what happens with Leah here. So uh, chapter 29, beginning in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And now the following verses are going to tell us about Leah. Remember Leah. Remember Leah? Jacob, years ago, Jacob... Uh, rolled into town looking for a wife, right? And he rolled into town and he saw Rachel. Rachel was beautiful. She had him from the moment he first saw her and then he pursues her. Kind of some strange behavior we saw from him because men have have a, a propensity to act strange in front of beautiful women. He's no exception. Here's Jacob. He starts pursuing this woman. He he meets Rachel, wants to marry her, talks to her father, Laban, and says, what do I need to do to marry your daughter? And and Jacob says, how about this? I'll work for you for seven years. Seven years. Seven years. No time with her. Right? No, No dates. No relationship. Just I'll prove myself for seven years, and that'll be like the bride price. And this day you paid a bride price. That means if you wanted to marry a girl, you had to give her dad $25,000, $30,000. This wasn't because she was some sort of commodity that you had to purchase. It's because you had to prove that you were able to care for her and able to provide for her. In fact, if the family did what they should do with that money, they would set it aside in case you ever ditched her so that they could take care of her. So Jacob says, listen, I'll work for you for seven years. He works seven years. He stays pure. Him and Rachel stay away from one another. The seven years are up. You know he's got it on the calendar. He's checking off every day. And that exact day that those seven years are up, he goes to Laban and says, give me my wife. And you remember what he says, give me my wife that I may go into her. Wow. This is very direct straightforward conversation with his father-in-law. I don't want to play a board game. I don't want to go for a walk. I'm not interested in talking. I want to be with my wife. Perfectly appropriate. He had waited seven years and he had loved Rachel for those seven years by working just so that he could have her as his wife. He loved her. And then we remember what happened. On his wedding night, 
on his wedding night, he was tricked by Rachel's dad and Rachel's unsightly sister, Leah. Betrayed. Tricked. Thought he was going to bed with his wife, Rachel, whom he loved, whom he had chosen, whom he favored. And instead, he was deceived by Rachel's dad, Laban, and by Rachel's sister, Leah, into going to bed with Leah. So Leah, we're reading about here, she tricked Jacob into marrying her. It's not like she didn't know what was going on. She tricked her husband into marrying her. So Jacob then had to work another seven years. And he's in the middle of that right now when all of this takes place. He had to work another seven years so that he could marry Rachel. So now as we come to this story, he has two wives, right? He has Leah. We'll call her wife number one. It's going to get complicated, so we're going to have to number them. Wife number one is Leah. And now he's agreed to work another seven years. So he's given wife number two, who is Rachel. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And then we read about all of these kids that God is going to give Leah. God saw Leah. He saw that she was hated. That word may bring up a meaning that's not actually what this means. In verse 30, it tells us simply that really that Jacob loved them both, but he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And he's going to continue to care for Leah and provide for Leah. But he certainly favored Rachel, which means that Leah was probably neglected. Well, God saw this. God saw that she was hated. God pitied Leah which means he had compassion on Leah. And the way God showed his compassion and the way God showed his pity was he gave her children. He gave her children. So there were some parts of her life that were, that were really rough. She was married to a man that did not love her. She did not have her husband's affection. Well, God was compassionate to her and the way he was compassionate was by giving her children. So what we're going to see is that Leah was, when you think of Leah, think of a gal who's frustrated and fruitful. Because she's frustrated. She's frustrated. You can hear this in how she names her her children, but she's fruitful. She's fruitful. She's bearing children. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. So she's naming her children, right? Um, based on what, what, what she's going through emotionally. She names her first boy Reuben. He has seen my misery. Hey, misery. It's an unfortunate name. Simeon, she names him. He has heard my misery. And what is her goal? What is her hope in all of this? Her hope and her goal is that if she has children, maybe she'll get the affection of her husband. Maybe if I keep giving my husband children, if I keep giving him boys, Maybe his feelings toward me are going to change. And so this is what she's hoping for. It's what she's praying. Again, verse 34, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing 
Leah's given four boys like me, have four boys. And we're reading about Leah's spiritual journey in these verses. We're reading about her spiritual journey. We're reading about her relationship with God. She talks to God. Yes, she talks to God. She have a relationship with God. She has a relationship with God. God sees her and God is good to her and God is compassionate to her. God has pity on her. No one around Leah loves her. No one favors her. She's always been living in the shadow of her sister, Rachel, who was beautiful. She's married and her husband has no desire to be with her. He shows her no affection. He avoids her. He he stays away. This is this is really painful. This is painful. This is sad. Well, what does God do? Well, God sees her, right? God sees her. God knows her. God cares for her. And God loves her. And he shows her his love by giving her children. So she's got parts of her life that are really messed up. And she's got parts of her life that are great. Some of you can relate to this. She has parts of her. She has things that she desires and things that she wants that are not going well. But she's fruitful. She's fruitful. God is blessing her with children. This is how Martin Luther describes the sad state that she's in. Wretched Leah sits sadly in her tent with her maid and spends her time spinning and weeping for the rest of the household and especially Rachel despises her because she has been scorned by her husband who prefers Rachel and is desperately in love with Rachel alone. She is not beautiful, not pleasing. No, she is odious and hated. There the poor girl sits. No one pays any attention to her. Rachel gives herself airs before her. She does not deign to look at her. I am the lady of the house, she thinks. Leah is a slave. These are truly carnal things in the saintly fathers and mothers, like the things that usually happen in our houses. We relate to this. Psalm 2710 says, For the father, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Isn't that a great verse? Listen how sweet that verse is. Psalm 2710, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Leah could say, My husband has forsaken me. My husband doesn't want to have anything to do with me. But the Lord has taken me in. This is great encouragement to us. I wonder if some of you can relate to Leah. I wonder if some of you can read her sad story and it reminds you of relationships that you have in your life. Relationships that are supposed to be the source of love, right? And relationships that are supposed to be the source of encouragement and care and protection and provision, but relationships that did not turn out that way. Right? You're supposed to have moms and dads who, who love you and who care for you and who will provide for you and who will protect you and show compassion toward you. And many of you had moms or dads that did not do that. You're supposed to have brothers and sisters, right? Another close relationship that would love you and care for you and protect you. And maybe you didn't have those relationships go the way that they should have. 
or a husband or a wife that was supposed to be loving, that was supposed to be ever faithful, that was supposed to have your interest in mind more than their own. But what happens is we, in this broken world, this side of the fall, we have relationships that are not what they should be all too often. So it's good to remember this, isn't it? That, well, your, your mom might forsake you. Your dad might forsake you. Your husband might forsake you. Your wife might forsake you. Your brother, your sister, and on and on and on. But the Lord wants you. Amen. He wants you. And He'll take you in. That's what the text says. He'll take you in. No problem. We start to make assumptions that I'm getting rejected all over the place because I'm worthy of being rejected and I'm just to be discarded. And then God comes and says, no, 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 you're not. These are these are painful providences. And I'm so sorry that you've had this happen to you in your life. But but the Lord says, I'll take you in. God says he loves you. You don't have a dad. I'll be your dad. God says, you don't have a mom. I'll be your mom. You don't have a brother. I'll be your brother. You don't have a good sister. I'll be a good sister to you. You don't have a husband, I'll be your husband. You don't have a wife, I'll be your wife. I'll be everything you need. In fact, all these other relationships that are special relationships are supposed to be wonderful relationships. They're, they're all second rate compared to the relationship we have with God. In fact, they're all images. They're just images that are supposed to teach us something about relationship and about connection and about what that's supposed to be. But they're just little black and white, grainy pictures of what a relationship with God actually is. That's the first rate relationship. So God comes to many and says, listen, I know you don't have these special relationships, but listen, those are second rate relationships and this is a first rate relationship and I want you. I want you. And I love you. What does the scriptures teach? For those of you who are Christians, it teaches you that this is what happened. You were an orphan. You were an orphan. You did not belong to God. You did not belong to his family. You had no claim there. And what did God do? He found you, he sought you, and he adopted you. He adopted you. He said, I'm going to be your dad now. He's our heavenly father. We pray to him as our heavenly father. What does he call us? His adopted sons and daughters. New creation. New family. New father. So what is God doing with Leah here? Well, he loves Leah, doesn't he? He cares about Leah. I know your life is messed up right now, Leah. And I know you're going through some really painful things. Let me give you four boys. Let me give you four children. And we see her spiritual journey. And it looks like by the end of these four boys at verse 35, listen, she's not talking anymore about her kids being a tool, right? To gain her husband's affection. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah and then she ceased bearing. These are some pretty important kids that she has, aren't they? Levi is going to become the father of the priesthood. So all the priests you read about in the Bible are going to come from Levi, except for one priest. And the one priest in the Bible that doesn't come from Levi is Jesus, the high priest. And where does he come from? Judah, her other boy. You may have thought that the family line of the Messiah was traced through Rachel, the loved wife, the favored wife, but it's not. It's through Leah. These are very special boys that he blesses this woman with. So that's Leah. And now we get into Rachel. Chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she 
envied her sister. So Rachel's jealous. We're going to find out about her struggle here. She's jealous. She possibly hated Leah. Why? Because Leah has what she wants, which is children. We also know Rachel, was, she's beautiful. So if it's anything like today, she's probably used to getting everything that she wanted. And she's not getting what she wants. So you'll see everybody in the story has blessings that God has given them, but they're not content with what God has given them. What they, what, what they want are the things that they do not have. Does this, does this resonate with anybody? Right? In fact, James 4 says that this is how fights break out. Fights break out because you want things and you don't get them and other people have them and you hate them and you want to kill them. That's a fight. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. So if, if, if Leah is is frustrated and fruitful. Rachel is beautiful and barren. So there's the alliteration for those of you that like the same letter at the beginning of all of the points. She's beautiful and she's barren. She's got some great things going for her. She's beautiful. She's probably had a lot of things come easy for her in her life. Uh, She's been blessed. Uh, Her husband has great love for her. He's deeply in love with her, has great affection for her. But she's barren. So the result is that both of these sisters are miserable. They're both miserable. One is saying, well, I have children, but I want my husband to love me. So I'm miserable. And the other is saying, well, my husband loves me, but I want children, so I'm miserable. And you have the loving husband, and you have the children, so now there's this competition. There's this fight that breaks out between them. So Rachel is angry. She's angry that she doesn't have children, so she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. The more drama in Genesis, right? It's like Esau when he ran in and said, give me a bowl of soup or I'm going to die. We're pretty sure he's okay because he's yelling and screaming. He's probably not going to die. This is the same thing. Give me a child or I shall die. That's kind of a funny thing to say to Jacob because it's obviously not his fault. Right? We don't need to work that out, right? I mean, Jacob is working just fine, right? She's mad at him. Hey, you, give me some children. He's like, "Uh, I have children. These are my boys. His response is as much. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Blames God. Now he blames God rightly. He acknowledges the sovereignty of God to his wife. I mean, I guess he's, he is speaking the truth. Probably not what Paul tells the Ephesians to do, right? When he says, speak the truth in love. In love. We can get caught up just doing the truth. Oh, we need to be truth speakers. Uh, yes, in love. He looks at Rachel and says, it's not my fault. I'm working just fine. Let me introduce you to my four kids. 
Okay, the problem is you and it's not going to get worked out until God decides to change it. So what are you mad at me for? So he declares the sovereignty of God. His anger was kindled, it said. And there's something missing here. Another example for us not to follow. What are Jacob and Rachel not doing? They're not praying. You see that missing? Rachel really wants kids. Why isn't she praying? Jacob wants kids with Rachel, but he's not praying. They're blaming each other. Jacob goes so far to even acknowledge that it's up to God that he needs to open her womb. And yet there is no recorded prayer from either one of them. Listen, many of you have things that you want. And and some of the things that you want are good things. The things you desire are, are, are good things. You should ask God for them. In fact, remember the end of that verse in James 4, 1 and 2, where it talks about you don't want these things. And so you get mad at each other about these things because you don't have what you what you really want. And then he says, and you don't have because you what? You don't ask. You don't ask. Now, he's not saying that just whatever you ask for God, ask for God in the, in the right way and have enough faith. Right. Word of have a word of faith moment with him and say it perfectly and rightly. And if you do that with enough faith, it's like pulling a lever and God's going to give you what you want. Well, no, we've got lots of other verses that say that sometimes God says no and he's got reasons. But listen, this is a pretty common sense principle. You you, you won't you you will never have the things that you desire, the things that you want. You will never have things that you pray for if you're not praying for them. (laughs) Okay, you won't have the things you're praying for if you're not praying for them. We must be a prayerful people. It's really sad because he had a really good example of this. His mom and dad, Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca went a long time without children. Infertility is a big problem in this family. It goes back for generations, infertility does. And it's interesting. You see how all the different couples handle it, how they respond to the struggle. We're going to see what Jacob and Rachel do. We saw what Abraham and Sarah did. But do you remember Isaac and Rebecca? Chapter 25, verse 21 It told us that his wife, Rebecca, was barren. She had no children. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Isn't that sweet? That's perfect. Isaac prayed. So what was was his solution? I'm going to pray to the Lord. He understood what his son Jacob understands, that God's in control. So he prayed to God. God wants to grant the desires of his children's hearts. The Word tells us this. And so we know that he loves us. We know that he cares for us. Like he cares for Leah, like he cares for Rachel. And so we go to him. Say, Lord, these are the desires of my heart. Would you? Could you? Please. And we put it in his hands. Your will be done. But we say, Lord, please. Please. Would you grant this desire of my heart? Rachel and Jacob are are not doing that. Instead, this is the solution. Verse 3. Then she said... Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. Does this sound familiar? Maybe we read about this in Genesis chapter 16. She's pulling a Sarah. Okay. Remember, Sarah took matters into her own hands. 
God told Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you a child. Decades are going by. No child, no child, no child. So what did she do? She said, Abraham, honey, I want you to sleep with Hagar, my maidservant, and she'll be a sort of surrogate mother of this child, and then I'll raise the child. Not in God's culture, but in the culture at large at this time, this is how childlessness was dealt with. Okay, in ancient Near Eastern culture, if a woman was childless, it would be common for her to have a maidservant or a maid who would sleep with her husband, and then she would be a surrogate mother of the child. And then once the child was born to wife number two, the child would actually become the child of wife number one. And so this is what Rachel is proposing. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. So that's wife number Three and counting. So he's up to three now. And Jacob went into her. Notice again what is not here, which is another bad example. Is there any disagreement from Jacob? There is no disagreement from Jacob. You're going to see he just bounced around like a ping pong ball in in this story. He never should. Should he disagree? Absolutely. He thank you. He should he should disagree. Honey, I don't think that's a really good idea. I've already got two wives. I don't think we should like, well, the more wives the better. I don't think that's going to work. We shouldn't do this. Okay? God obviously has another plan, but there is no disagreement. No pushback. Scripture is very plain. He said, "Yes, dear. Anything for the family." If it'll make you happy, I'm happy to sleep with another woman. As many as you need me to. And this is what he's going to do. Then, uh, so Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. So it, it, it worked in terms of what Rachel wanted. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Now, when she says judged her, she doesn't mean it in a bad way. She thinks that this son is God smiling on her for her decision. God has judged what I have done. God has vindicated me. God has given me what I wanted. You're going to see that she's going to misinterpret providence. Things will happen. Christians can still do this, right? Things will happen to Christians. Providence. Circumstances will play out in your life. God's hand is behind them. And we'll make assumptions about what they mean. So something good happens and we make all these assumptions about what that means and and what decisions we're now going to make and where we're going to go. And we sin. We sin. And it turns out well. And we think, oh, I guess the Lord's happy with my sin. I think I'll do that again. And then it doesn't go well. And we're, we're thinking that God's not being consistent. Listen, God, God blesses you when you're doing well. God blesses you when you're not doing well. And God works his plan in your life and God does what is best in your life. And sometimes it's to bless you. Sometimes it's to withhold blessing. Sometimes it's connected to things that you've done. Sometimes it's not connected to things that you've done. Okay, the way God works in your life is often very mysterious. He gives you the ends and lets you know how it's going to turn out and what he's ultimately doing. And he gives you a description that that I'm working for your good in all of this. But you cannot live your life navigating by the providences that God brings. You live your life and you make decisions based on the word of God. On the word of God. But Rachel's excited. She thinks God is thrilled with her new plan. 
Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again. Oh, God gave her another child. God must really be happy with what we're doing. And bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, listen to what she said. This is going to reveal her motives in all of this. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. She literally names this son, I have tapped out my sister. We were wrestling, right? We were wrestling, and she tapped out. I won. Competition over. This is how she looks at it. Why? Because remember the scales? The scales were Leah's over here. Husband doesn't love me, but I have kids. And Rachel's over here. Husband loves me, but I don't have kids. So the scale's kind of even. And now Rachel says, husband loves me and I have kids. So what does she declare before God and before others? I won. I won. Competitive childbearing. Now, what we're going to see is by the end of, of our text here that God is using, right? These are painful providences in their life. This is, I mean, Leah is, is, is being neglected by her husband. That's, that's sad. That's, that's wrong. That's cause for great sorrow. And you're going to see that God is using that, though, to mature her. And God is using that for her good. And God is using that to, to grow her up in grace. And Rachel, all she wants is children now, and she, she cannot have children. That's sad that she cannot have children. But God is using childlessness in Rachel, and he's using the neglect that Leah is suffering, and he's using all of that to work for their spiritual growth. Now, the reason that's important for us to understand is, I'm guessing that most of you right now have, have big rocks that it feels like you're under. You have, you have trials that you're going through. You're, you're, you're suffering in some way. You're in trouble in some way. You have, you have pain that you're enduring. Uh, there, some of you, there's just things you do to not think about it or to avoid it. But, but some of you, you're, you're in touch with that. So you know, and it feels like a big weight, a big burden, a big burden on your back. Now, what is natural for us is, is to get out from underneath that burden. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is complete. We're not gluttons for punishment. When we're in pain, we want to flee from the pain. When we're in suffering, we want to get out from underneath the suffering. So, so, but, but understanding that, that we want to get out from underneath these burdens, when we read passages like this, it's helpful to remind us that the burdens are good. The burdens are good. It doesn't mean thank you for the burden, bring me more burdens, I love trial by fire, put me in the furnace of affliction. We don't foolishly pray like that, but it means that we recognize and it, it helps us to endure. It helps us to endure those heavy burdens on our back when we understand that God put the burden there, ultimately. There may be the sin of others that got it there. There may be your sin that got it there. But ultimately, God's sovereign. And so he put that burden on your back. And we also know that that burden is on your back for good. It's good. The weight is good. It's going to bring about something good. How is it going to bring about something good? Why well, we never have answers to that, right? I mean, maybe you get lucky and you end up with some hindsight that you can look back and see I was used for good. But very rarely do you do you know how it's going to work out for good until it works out for good. So what's required? What's required then? Faith. Not seeing it right, but believing it, not 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 knowing it by experience, but 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 knowing it by the word of God. 
Right? So this is how this is how Rachel and Leah should be getting through their struggles. And they're not. They're not. Verse verse nine. So Leah here reenters the competition. Is basically what happens, right? Because what is she, it already told us is, okay, she, she had four kids and then she stopped having kids. Okay? But now Rachel had two kids through her servant and is counting them as her kids. So what does Leah do? Oh, we have new rules. Right? And two can play this game. So Leah, quite literally, re-enters the competition. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. How many wives are we up to? Wife number four. Wife number four. One, two, three, four. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. This is really, this is really strange. Okay, these, these children are, are like a, a, a tool to win this competition that is taking place between these two sisters. And it's like a poker game where everybody's upping the ante, right? I'll see, I'll see your one wife and four boys and raise you a concubine and two boys. Oh, really? Well, I'll see your one wife uh, and, and one concubine and two boys, and I'll raise you one wife and four boys and, and one concubine and two boys. And, and my one wife and four boys and one concubine and two boys beats your one wife and one concubine and two boys. Game over. Right, victory. What does she name her first son? Earlier she was mentioning the Lord in her thankfulness. She names this boy Lucky. He names him Lucky, like naming him Lotto or Reno, Thunder Valley. This is what she names her son. There's no mention of God, no recognition that God's hand is behind this. It's Lucky. Jacob got Lucky. She names her next son. Also, not a good name. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I. No mention of God. She names the first kid Lucky, the second kid Happy. For women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. So there's no more reference to God in the names. Which may mean that they're, Leah's backsliding. Leah's becoming faithless now. She uh, is getting caught up in this competition with her sister. She's not content. Maybe she was starting to become content, but now she's caught up again and really wants to, really wants to see her sister lose. Wants to see her sister fail. So now we come to this section, verses 14 through 21. And you just got to brace yourself when we read this. I mean, if we thought that this family was weird and sick, we've seen nothing yet, right? This is just un unbelievable. Okay, this is happening. Verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest... Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. So remember Reuben. Reuben was the very first son that Leah had, very, Jacob's first son. He's probably about four or five years old. 
he's four or five years old, and he brings his mom a big handful of mandrakes. Okay, mandrakes are like this big rooted plant, and they've got these orange berries on them. And here's the deal with mandrakes. It was believed for ages that these little orange berries increased female fertility. So Aunt Rachel wants her some mandrakes. Right? Because she has no children. She has not been able to bear children. Well, her nephew has found some mandrakes. Second part of verse 14 and then verse 15. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. This is so weird. But she said to her, now listen, now, now Leah's going to kind of explode here. And sometimes, you ever had this happen where you're, you're talking with someone and all of a sudden this big statement comes out that involves all this history and they're obviously upset and you had no idea. I mean, it was like the tip of this iceberg. It was really dramatic. And when it came out, you realized that, wow, there is a storm that is brewing underneath all of this. So Leah just, she loses it here. Verse 15 and says this, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? That sound a little weird to you? Like husband and fruit. Right? She's seeing them kind of like, is it not enough that you stole my husband? And now you want my fruit? That seems, that seems pretty dramatic. I would hope if you were in the back here after service and you had a basket of fruit and I asked for an apple, that you wouldn't go off on me like this. Is it not enough? <laughs> now you want an apple? She just unleashes. Now, the other funny thing about this is, did Rachel steal Leah's husband? No. Leah stole Rachel's husband. This is backwards. Rachel does not say that. Excuse me? Excuse me. I think you're, you're not recollecting things correctly. I mean, Leah is the one who deceived her husband. Leah is the one who deceived Jacob into sleeping with her on that first night when he was betrothed to Mary Rachel. Leah was the thief. Okay, yes, it gets worse. Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. We, we really just read that. So, Rachel proposes a deal. Okay? You give me the mandrakes, and I'll accept that as payment. There's a word for this, by the way. When payment is received. You give me the mandrakes, and I'll accept that as payment, and I'll let you spend the night with your husband. Right? She's, so she's, she's booking his appointments. She's scheduling this out. If you give me the mandrakes, that's what she wants, then I'll give you your husband for a night. Verse 16. Oh my goodness. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. 
Like, there, we don't have enough time to talk about all the things that are wrong with that sentence. So this is her husband, right? She's wife number one. I have hired you. That's strange to hear from your wife. I have hired you. You must. She comes out first and says, you have to, you have to go to bed with me tonight. And he says, why? And she says, because I hired you. That's strange. What did you hire me with? Some fruit? <laughs> you, you think Jacob's got some self-worth issues at this point? The first guy who needed the doctrine of self-esteem, right? Right? Man, he, what else? Like, just no, just some mandrakes. Two of them. That was it. She seemed happy. <laughs> so he lay with her that night. Yes, ma'am. Yes, dear. Whatever it takes. I'm happy to take one for the team. And he keeps sleeping with these women, being bounced around like a ping pong ball. Jacob is being totally passive. He is not speaking up. This is wrong. This is not appropriate. We are God's people. We are God's family. We cannot live like this. He takes no stand whatsoever. Goes to bed with Rachel again. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have my I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar and Leah conceived again and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So she has two boys, two more boys and a girl, Dinah. At this point, Dinah has ten older brothers. Do not mess with Dinah. There's going to be a chapter that we're going to read that's going to teach just that. Do not mess with this little girl because she has brothers. It's ironic, isn't it? Because who ends up with more children? Leah. So Rachel gives her husband away for a couple of nights in exchange for this fruit that is supposed to increase her fertility so that she can bear children. And what ends up happening is that her barren sister Leah ends up having three more kids. Three more kids. Rachel still doesn't really have what she desires. Rachel still doesn't have what she really wants. And she's done everything godless and faithless to get what she wants. And yet we come to verse 22. Verse 22, another very sweet verse about God. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And does Rachel deserve this child? I don't think so. I don't think so. Look at how she's responded. Look at what she's done. Look at how she, look how she's taken matters into her own hands. Has she been faithful or faithless? She has not honored the Lord with her decisions. She has not sought after him. She has not patiently prayed for this child. She's turned this into a competition with her sister where she's gloated over her sister. 
And yet, what does God do? He remembers her. He loves her. She's his girl too. He cares about her. He knows what she wants desperately. He knows what she is now praying for. Because what did she say? God listened to her and opened her womb. God blesses her. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So this also brings her back to God, doesn't it? She's acknowledging God. She knows this is from the goodness of God. Is she bitter over the last seven years? There's no indication that she is. Is she complaining? Well, it took you long enough. And I wouldn't have had to go through all of this if you would have just brought me Joseph seven years ago. There's no complaining. There's no discontentment. There's just, okay, Lord, I see what you were up to. I see what you were doing. Thank you so much for this boy, Joseph. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son, which will be another sad story because God will bless her with another son, but she will die when she's bearing that child, Benjamin. So this story, this love story between Jacob and Rachel continues. And we read about this polygamous family with a a passive husband and feuding sisters. So in conclusion, God is fulfilling the first stage of the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. That's what's taking place here. Remember, though, man is faithless. God is faithful. God is faithful because what did God promise? What was the first part of what he promised Father Abraham? I'm going to give you lots of children. And for a long time, it was just Abraham and Sarah. And there were no children. And then there was Isaac. And then there was a long time and Isaac and Rebekah. And then there was Jacob and Esau. But this doesn't look like what God had talked about. Let me read you the verses. 12 verse 2, all from Genesis. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. He said to Abraham, 15, verse five, he brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And how many kids did Abraham have when God told him that? Zero kids. 17, verse five, he said to Abraham, no longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 26 verse 4 to Isaac now God says I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and how many kids did Isaac have when God told him that zero and then to Jacob we read in 28 verse 14 your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And when God promised that to Jacob, how many children did Jacob have? Zero. No children. And now, in chapter 30, the river starts to widen. It was just Abraham and Sarah alone for a long time with this promise of many children. Then there was a few kids, one in particular, Isaac, the promised son. And then there was Jacob and Esau and the promised son, Jacob. And now we're really starting to read how God is going to grow this family. Is this how you would expect God to grow his family? 
Okay, we're going to have we're going to end up having 12 boys here. And these 12 boys are going to become the fathers of the nations of Israel. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is how God grows his family. Seven years, four wives, 12 children. A passive dad. Feuding sisters. Pain and trouble and turmoil. Faithlessness, right? And then the author of Scripture brings us behind the scenes. And then we see that in all of this, God is being faithful. God is being faithful. Man is faithless, but God is absolutely. God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being faithful. And thank you for keeping all of your promises to us and loving us when we don't love you and blessing us when we don't honor you and obey you. You're good, Lord, to us. You're always good to us. Always doing what's best for us. Thank you. God, thank you for not giving us what we deserve, but for keeping from us what we deserve, for being merciful. And thank you for giving us as the most unlikely of people because of our sin, your, your grace, pouring out your favor on us. God, it's all a waste if you're not glorified. He'll be glorified in making much of so little. Be glorified in being strength to our weakness and being faithfulness and in spite of our faithlessness. Be glorified, God. That your name would be great, that your renown would be great, that your people would sing your praises and the whole universe would know that you are the one true God and you are a great God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.